when you're on a trading desk, you pick up a lot of life lessons. Like, what barbecue is the best in Manhattan? But then again, there are other lessons like how to play the game. Probability, for instance. Traders eat, sleep, and breathe probability and statistics. Whereas the average person has very little appreciation for such. Another is how to structure your thinking about your next career opportunity. And when I was an intern at Barclays Capital, which had just bought Lehman Brothers after it went bust in the middle of the 2008 financial crisis, a trader had given me the advice that when looking at a desk, you want to prioritize three things. One is the asset class that you're trading. Is that actually interesting to you? Secondly, is that asset class growing? Are you in an expanding market where you have the wind in your sails? And then the third one is, perhaps obviously to anyone a little bit experienced in the workplace, the team. Is it a team that you actually like and want to work with? Notably absent from that list is your manager, which matters in almost every other profession, every other industry you can imagine. Your boss is super important. On a trading desk, similar perhaps to a sales executive, that matters far less because the only thing that matters on the trading desk is results. You can have two ideally out of those three factors when choosing the next opportunity. Seldom three. The adage goes, you can't have everything, right? But this is a podcast for people who want more. People who want it all. I should note, it is ironic that traders on Wall Street should be dispensing career advice because they have the most atypical careers of anyone. Most of them have no idea what it's like to work in a real, in quotes, corporation. I think it was Liar's Poker that painted traders on the mortgage desk as kind of the gorillas in Salomon Brothers. Or, or maybe he was talking about equities in Dallas at that point. But the personalities that came out in Liar's Poker were definitely more of the caveman variety. I think there is something more primal about the men and women on Wall Street compared to the average corporation. They're more like cavemen and cavewomen, albeit the kind of intellect one needs to succeed in that environment is very far from a caveman. So I suppose that means one is dealing with a much more lethal form of caveman. Sometimes I wonder, though, so many people spend lots of time focusing on what they eat, trying to make it as caveman and cavewoman-like as possible. Granted, there's all sorts of things that are ludicrous and hilarious about that diet that if you take it to the extreme don't really hold or don't make any sense logically. And, and also, at what point in time do you, do you go back? I myself am not a huge paleo fan, although I do like keto. 
and slow carb, low carb, uh, but that is a major digression from the point here. Speaking of taking paleo and other things to extreme, what if you were to apply paleo logic to all sorts of other things in life, like paleo transportation, for instance, paleo travel, paleo finance. Maybe those things, according to the logic of the paleo ascribes, is that our bodies and our minds are more suited to everything that cave people liked. Obviously, I'm exaggerating for effect, and there are many benefits to the paleo diet. But I think one application of this concept, that expansion of the paleo concept to other things in our life, is worth thinking about. What if you were to have a paleo career? And because that career occupies so much of our time during the day, during the week, it's what I call a paleo life. Speaking of gorillas, there's another place I worked as one of those gorillas, and that was on the USS Rushmore. Yes, USS means it's in the Navy. Right after the Naval Academy, I went to a naval warship, an amphibious ship out of San Diego, deployed to Southeast Asia. Interesting and valuable experience. When you're a junior officer and you figure out what ship you're going to, the tradition is to write a letter to the commanding officer. It's an interesting tradition to have a junior officer write a freeform letter to a much more senior officer. But uh, I suppose that tradition dates back a very long time. There's... (laughs) an ability of that junior officer to make a request about what they do. Usually that's not honored at all, as I found out, because what I wanted to do was one of the most technically demanding jobs on the ship because I thought that'd be intellectually challenging and set me up for a tech career maybe later on, um, among other reasons. And what I got was the biggest leadership challenge of all which is deck division or deck department on an amphibious ship. And deck (laughs) means everybody who's not inside, essentially. So the people who are on deck for most of their naval career are those people who paint the ship, take the rust off with these needle guns. If you've never heard a needle gun over your head when you're trying to sleep, uh, oh my God, you haven't experienced... Uh, pain or or migraines the way that that will induce them. The folks in deck division in the U.S. Navy, probably the British Navy, let's say any English-speaking Navy probably uses the same term. They also man the boats, the, the small boats that, you know, it's boats within boats. It's like Inception. <laughs> the and and the uh the the medium-sized boats have uh, remote controlled boats no i'm just just kidding in most cases there may be some secret squirrel projects that i don't know of and it actually is one of the most interesting things one can do in the navy it's real navy stuff when you think about the navy chances are you're thinking about deck division 
and the rate, the Navy rate that uh, the enlisted folks have who are in that occupation is bosun's mate, spelled boatswain's mate. That may be too in the weeds there, but I know a number of you enjoy the naval details. Anyway, the bosun's mates are affectionately known as deck apes. I think many of them wear that as a badge of honor, though by those who aren't bosun's mates, it's certainly an insult. But as I quickly learned to appreciate the bosun's mates, the deck apes, the people who are outside doing real things in the real world, doing real Navy stuff, are the salt of the earth and the uh, best people you could possibly be around. Anyway, I remember during my first couple weeks or so being out and just basically learning from them, getting to know them. I certainly wasn't doing any supervising at that point. Not that they needed it. They, a few of them talking about their job said things like, I would never want to be in an office. I I really like being outside. And at the time, sort of egotistically or, you know, chances are I was a good deal older than, than at least the youngest recruits thought to myself that maybe they're just rationalizing because the truth is, despite the value that that rate or rating rather, uh, bosun's mate provides to the Navy as important as it is, it's one of the ratings that you get if you don't do that well on the ASVAB, which is the aptitude test that every enlisted person in the Navy takes. So I assumed it was some sort of rationalization, but I've come to learn over the years that being outside is one of the best things. And it probably is our natural state. We're not meant to be in cubicles all day. Little boys and girls are not meant to sit quietly at their desks while they listen to someone drone on or sit quietly at their desks and do anything for that matter. There's a lot of good that comes through quarantine for those who are at least a little bit reflective and have been intentional about how they invest their time now during this period. The memes and social media posts about Zoom calls and plenty of blog articles coaching people how to deal with their anxiety, frustration, boredom, everything else you can imagine on Zoom calls. I think if anything is not an exception, but rather shines a light and a microscope on what we do every day inside big companies and corporations. The thing is, we talked in the two-part series, Granted, which aired right before this episode, we talked about not taking things for granted, not assuming the status quo is what it is intentionally or by design or by inevitability and asking those why questions and thinking what if. The thing is, so many of us accept those corporate practices for what they are. And numerous people that you'll encounter in your working life 
will go to great lengths to justify the game as it is. Cal Newport has a book, which is all about career capital. I'll link to it in the show notes. And I remember the whole time I was reading it, I just had a really hard time accepting it. But the reason is not because it's not good advice. The reason is because it's not good advice for everybody. And the bigger reason is that it accepts a lot of the status quo and assumes a given game needs to be played, which is not always the case. The game is designed for the herd, at least the predominant game that everyone feels they need to play. And that's different for where you are in life, where you are geographically, but there's a dominant game that supposedly is the path for success. Out of business school, typically, maybe that's changed recently, people would go into consulting or banking as the two sort of biggest lucrative paths. And then a bunch of people went into industry as well. Industry meaning like go to General Motors or Dow Chemical or an oil company and become a general manager there. And those were the well-worn paths. And, you know, even as recently as 10 years ago, going to a startup was relatively unheard of, let alone starting your own venture right out of business school. The thing is, there are many possible games. Tim Ferriss made a name for himself with the four-hour work week precisely on that premise, is that you can play an entirely different game than everyone else. And as you think about your career, especially if you're early on, and if you're frustrated, granted, this is not a podcast for everyone. This advice and these concepts are not for everyone. But if you find yourself getting advice all over the place, reading these books that are popular in business culture about how you should build your career, and you find yourself repeatedly frustrated, you need to remember now and going forward that it's not about a different job. It's not about a different boss. It's not about playing the game differently. It's not about changing your wording. It's not about finding more work-life balance or a better team or a better manager, or maybe you just need to get paid more so you can forget how miserable you are and how unfulfilled you are and how you will never, ever get promoted because you speak too many honest truths. The truth is you need to play a different game. So what does that mean in a practical sense? We've talked at numerous points in the podcast, especially in Granted Part 1 and Part 2, which you should check out. We've talked about leveling up, leveling up, and leveling up again. So you need to always think higher, meaning higher level thinking and questioning so many parts of the problem and what the possible solution space might be that you can come to a better result. The goal is to play the game you were designed to play. And if you stay in your siloed thinking or just where you are 
whether that be geographically, whether that be company, whether that be industry, whether that be function, whether that be with whatever money you have at your disposal, if you constrain so many parts of the equation before you even go about solving it, then you might be in trouble and you'll remain unfulfilled. Since we're talking about cavemen and cave women here, maybe we should think about fitness. I don't mean your physical fitness. I mean fitness in an evolutionary sense. If we think as a counterexample of getting fit physically, you can do all sorts of things to improve your cardiovascular health, to improve your body mass index, to improve your strength, to improve your speed and agility, flexibility. All those things are good reminders to me to have a well-rounded workout, especially now during quarantine. The thing is, though, if we think about a career, if we think about paleo life, how can you work out to play a given game better? Now, of course, we can all build skills that we need. We can build a network. We can build social proof and credibility that we can do a job, good references, good experience, good points of view on topics that are important and valuable. We can have skills that are rare, specialized. All those things are are great. But if we talk about a game in terms of politically or in a corporate sense, you can build skills to get paid more and and on the topic of measurement, which is an important one, that can be your scale. But everyone knows even though everyone doesn't really know, but you, you figure it out eventually in life, money isn't everything. So that, that scale, that measurement, that metric isn't going to work for everybody. And in fact, in the long run, it's probably not going to work for most people. So how, how you actually know if your workout, whatever that means, is working to play a game within companies better? Instead, you'd be better off finding different games. This isn't saying everyone needs to be an entrepreneur. Far from it. But you need to find those unique games that you, yourself, your skills, but more importantly, your personality is geared toward. And play that game. Work for those companies. Work in those industries. Work in those unique circumstances where not just you can succeed, but where you thrive and are fulfilled. And yes, those may be rare, but they are life-changing when you find them. But make sure as you search for these opportunities that you remember that the way almost all of business operates is an extension of historic military operations. When businesses started to scale up and there became such a thing beyond an individual and his or her family as an entity, as a company, as a firm, as a corporation, as those kinds of businesses sprang up, there was no model besides the church and the military for organizing. Those models 
prioritize the collective outcome versus individual fulfillment. So one should never delude themselves that there are frequent occurrences of fulfillment of the individual in the marketplace. So you have to be very, very choosy about the opportunities that you select. Now, as a leader, you should think about how you can make your organization more suited to, first of all, a game that is more suitable to humans generally. And then secondly, how can you devise a game that suits diverse proclivities? So let's recap. As a leader, you're trying to find the best game so that you and your organization, your team, can succeed and so that you can delight customers or in the case of an NGO, so you can achieve your mission. In order to do that, you need the best talent you can find. And so you should have a game that is suitable to humans generally, but also achieves your ends. There must be, in most things, I just believe this, I don't have proof of this, but I do believe that you can find that intersection of a game that's suitable to humans generally and one that achieves your business outcome. It's just that we as a society have not actively searched for what that game is. Except for some notable exceptions that I'll get to in a minute. And then secondly, as a leader, again, to recap, you should figure out a game that accommodates diverse proclivities. What I mean by that is... You don't want a game that is suitable to lots of people, but that alienates some key members of your potential talent pool. Now, I suppose one could come and say, well, Shri, we, we kind of solve this different games problem by having different job functions. So we've got Bob in accounting and Susie, the salesperson, and this person, the engineer, and of course, Shri, you value leadership as a profession, so we've got Larry, the leader. But in reality, the way companies operate is not usually suited to a paleo life, right? Think about all the things we were doing as cavemen and all the things we weren't doing that we are doing now in corporate society. And it's ironic, of course, I'm not saying anything necessarily novel here, maybe I'm saying it in a novel way, is that we trade our, you know, pleasure, our, we, we tra- trade paleo lifestyle in the short term in order to achieve it in the long term. When if we had just stayed caveman, granted we much more uncivilized, paleo life wasn't everything it was cracked up to be. I don't have a romantic view of that necessarily, like some of, uh, I think it was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, perhaps, the noble brute. But the truth is, except in the most notable name brand tech companies that you've heard of and startups, the responsibility model is not really there, except in maybe sales. And then along with that, There's no trust model to go along with that responsibility. And this has to do with what we've discussed before on the podcast, that 
most people are cowards and the average owner, manager, leader, except in those places I described earlier, is going to be risk averse. There are some exceptions to this. We talked about self-forming teams in the granted episodes. There are areas like consulting or banking where you have these pools of talent. It's not quite self-forming teams, but it's pretty close to it. And so you roll off of one project and you're in the pool and then an engagement manager or a partner will pull you into a project. And it's a great short-term way to figure out if you like working with people. And chances are, due to the limited time frame, people are going to be much more patient of each other. Meanwhile, for those who are jerks, it's a little bit of a filtering mechanism for them because if you're left in the pool for a long time, it's going to be very clear to those who matter that you're not adding value in all the ways that you should. Some have advocated those sort of project-based assignments more generally in the workplace, although I haven't really seen that anywhere except for those contexts I described, like consulting and, and banking. But I think it, it may have legs. It's just that inertia and risk tolerance prevent us from exploring that in even a small way. Reed Hoffman, famous Silicon Valley entrepreneur who founded LinkedIn, he's done a lot of writing, and I think he's a partner at Greylock Ventures now. He and his co-authors and maybe his co-founder at LinkedIn have described this sort of tours of duty model where you're somewhere for two to four years and it's explicitly agreed from the outset that that's going to be the time frame and what's expected. And importantly, as they note in the book Alliance, which goes into a lot of these topics in detail, there's an agreement about what each person will do for the other outside of a work for hire arrangement, outside of just, I pay you, you do time. The offer from the employer is, I'll help you develop your career and make you more marketable. So that gets to some of the Cal Newport career capital concepts, but applies it in a novel way that actually changes the game to be more palatable to more people, I think, and especially to how everyone wants to work in this day and age where there are lots of opportunities, especially being remote. When I was a kid, I played lots of sports with my brothers. I come from a big family. I have six younger siblings. We played baseball, soccer, tennis, touch football, flag football. I never played tackle football except uh, just with friends. I was a skinny little half Indian for <laughs> most of my existence up until a couple years into college. We even swam year-round in addition to those other sports. Of course, I hated swim team, uh, at least until high school, where it wasn't year-round anymore and you could do it with your friends. It was a lot more fun at that point as an adolescent. So sports occupied a lot of 
my childhood. There was one point, though, where the existing sports weren't satisfactory. I loved playing tennis, as I've described here before. I also loved playing soccer. And I wondered if you could mix the two. At some point, I must have brought a soccer ball out to the tennis court, maybe picking up my brother or something like that. And a friend and I invented the world-renowned sport called Tucker. And it basically amounts to, it's kind of like volleyball with a soccer ball, using your feet, well, using everything except your hands. The ball can bounce twice. It's got to be in the singles lines. And it's such a workout, and it really does increase your soccer skills. So if you've got some teenagers or you're a uh, midlifer out there in the soccer field, try playing some talker with your buddies, and it'll really increase your control and your stamina. It is tiring as hell. But that was an example of changing the game, designing a game that I was designed to play. There's a book I have on my shelf that I got from a good friend a while ago called Design the Life You Love. And it's a book by someone I saw at Amazon. Her name, I believe it's pronounced Aza Burzell. I'll link to it in the show notes. She's a designer who has succeeded in creating a great life for herself, which obviously involves a lot of career, but also family and some other things. And she's got a great method. I highly recommend getting the book. It gives you great perspectives and tools and worksheets on how to think about planning this life that you love. And you can see her examples of what she did, what the process she went through was for getting to that point. It's the same one that you follow in there. The thing most of all, whether you get the book or not, that I love is that it presents this problem of game selection as a design problem versus a search problem. Meaning, let's say you've accepted my premise of, okay, find a different game, and most importantly, find the game that you were designed to play. You might look at the problem as, hey, I need to go find that game. Like, it's out there somewhere. It's in a haystack. If I can just find that thing. But as Simon Sinek would say, it's an infinite playing field, an infinite meta game that we're playing. And so the process of finding that game that you were designed to play can involve... It's optional, of course, but fruitful. It can involve you making up that game for yourself. Design it for yourself so that everything lines up the way that you want and that's fulfilling to you. What's required here is a little agency. That means believing you are in control of the outcome, no matter what it is, believing in yourself and your ability to influence that outcome in a positive way. And probably most of all, advocating for yourself in the workplace, advocating for yourself with your manager, advocating for yourself with a potential future employer who extends an offer to you and knowing what you will accept and won't accept and not being desperate 
for a paycheck, not being desperate for approval, not feeling like you need to impress friends with what's on your resume. And by giving yourself the option to create the game, you've then created for yourself so many more options for what you choose. Man, thinking about paleo life just seems to me like thinking about when you were a kid. I told some kid stories today on this episode. So maybe it's just that kind of day. When I was a kid, let's call it 10 years old, my friends and I decided to dig a hole to China. Yep. <laughs> pretty ridiculous. Uh, I'm pretty sure we knew it wasn't possible. But we just enjoyed the activity of it, being outside, straining ourselves to dig deeper and deeper, having a goal, having that teamwork, just talking about stuff as we did it. I think really probably our intermediate milestone, if we're going to get all nerdy operationally about it, was to hit the aquifer or the mantle. I, I still don't entirely know what the mantle is, but... Some kid knew a lot about, about the water table and Florida does have a, a pretty high water table relative to ground. So we were pretty convinced we were going to hit water at some point. We, we never did. But what is that thing that you can do in your work and life that gives you that same kind of energy? Probably not much out there. Be realistic about it, but don't give up on finding that thing. It brings up an alternative solution to the problem, though, which is maybe just getting your hands dirty in a solution can help with nerves and anxiety or indecisiveness about what that next thing is that you do. There's something about physical labor versus mental that eases the mind and produces calm. Like sometimes before a big sporting event or a speech or any number of things, something that helps many people is to do a bunch of jumping jacks or do some push-ups. just get out that energy. And so maybe what we all need to do is just get our hands dirty in something. On the other hand, there's the book Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. Highly recommend it. I've listened to it two or three times. This host has a little bit of an ego that he is growing in his ability to check. He's also growing in his ability to not talk of himself in the third person. <laughs> but a common mistake that many people make, and this is me talking, not Ryan Holiday, is that a lot of people try to feed their egos, and I don't mean ego in like an arrogant sense and how they feel about themselves, but they try and feed a need for self-actualization in their work. And sometimes that's healthy. Sometimes it's not. There's a happy medium needed sometimes. And maybe, to go back on myself, maybe that's what Cal Newport is advocating the whole time. He's not saying you can't play a different game. Maybe what he's saying is, Grasshopper, be patient. I'm not sure, but what I do know is maybe, 
disengagement is a solution here. I don't believe Reed Hoffman talks about this in the Tours of Duty concept that's in the Alliance book as well as perhaps others he's written. But I think there's something about that prescribed time frame ahead of time, knowing that it's short, that improves the experience for everyone. And he does cite in a blog post that I read that MBAs at Wharton do have a better experience in quote unquote terminal jobs, meaning those that are of a prescribed duration and no more before business school, they have a better experience than those who are in normal careers. And so there's that disengagement that can be a solution, whether you're a leader designing that game for your organization or, or whether you are an employee, maybe there's a way to come up with a new model to negotiate something where it's clear that it's of a limited duration from the start. As a thought experiment, imagine you and your employer each have a die. You both have one half of a pair of dice, but work and careers sure ain't paradise. So you roll every day. The thing is, when your numbers first match, you don't work there anymore. Or maybe you go home that day and don't get paid. I think there's something about your experience there and their treatment of you that would remarkably change. That they wouldn't treat you like cattle or maybe the better analogy is oxen at their bidding. You wouldn't treat them as a sure paycheck and be tempted to slack on the job or shirk, which I believe was a term invented in the mid-20th century to describe this kind of behavior. And most importantly, despite the extreme ownership concept of some of my SEAL brethren, which I embrace in large part, I think that as they have expounded upon that idea and recognized that there are some exceptions to the extreme ownership rule and people shouldn't take it too literally, that this dice rolling every day, this cutting of the paradise fallacy, as I'll call it from here on out, about careers, that that will help you as the worker detach in healthy ways and not become overly invested and not expecting something out of it that is unrealistic. After all, you can't have it all. And now, ladies and gentlemen, is that time of the program where you and I and all of our friends will get all the way wet. I talked about Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, and I vaguely referenced some of his co-authors. One is Ben Kaznocha. I think there's a guy named Tommy Ye. I'll have his name in the show notes for sure. There's a, an HBR article, and if you don't know the parlance, it's Harvard Business Review article, which 
Harvard Business Review is how I got my MBA. I basically got my MBA before I went to Harvard Business School by just reading Harvard Business Review. If you read that thing and look up the concepts, think about the concepts, you will have at least half an MBA without paying insane amounts of money and going through that process and taking time out of the workforce. I may do a YouTube video on whether or not you should go to business school. If that appeals to you, please DM me on Instagram. I promise to make it within 24 hours if just one person DMs me on Instagram at Shri the Warrior Poet or at Shri Actually, I will make a personal YouTube video just for you. But that HBR article that Reed Hoffman and Ben Kaznocha wrote has some interesting tidbits in it. I'll read some excerpts. The article, of course, will be linked where? Show notes. They say, tiny startups out-execute corporate giants all the time despite seemingly huge disadvantages in resources and competitive position. Startups succeed because dot, dot, dot. There are entrepreneurial types who are motivated to out-hustle, out-network, and out-risk their competitors and who produce, my words, paraphrasing, outsize rewards. And what they go on to say is that building that kind of workforce can be really daunting. And as one example, if you bring in a whole bunch of startup people into your startup, maybe they'll just take your intellectual property and go start their own thing and leave, leaving you in the lurch. But that reality, they say, is one that startups deal with all the time in Silicon Valley. And what you need to do is harness that entrepreneurialism by rethinking the way that you contract and they call it a compact. I don't know what the verb form of a compact is. I'm pretty damn sure it's not compact or compact. <laughs> but the way you negotiate, the way you agree, the way you treat your people needs to change. If you are dealing with consultants or you're dealing with vendors, you deal with them in a much different way, usually in modern businesses than you would ever deal with an employee. And the fact is, those who are most entrepreneurial, aka most of this audience, are people who are not going to take that for very long. There's one other part of the article that I find really profound, which is they write, because the parties are seeking an alliance rather than just exchanging money for time, it can build a stronger relationship, dot, 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 allowing them, paraphrasing, to invest time and resources to find global maxima rather than, quote, seeking local peaks, end quote. This is a mental model, as Charlie Munger likes to evangelize. This is a mental model that can be applied to so many aspects of life, looking for those global maxima versus that outcome that is near and sort of obviously visible versus continuing to search and find what that ideal outcome is, but in a much more uncertain way. And if you don't harness that entrepreneurialism, 
which again, according to at least these authors, necessitates a new way of thinking, a new game that you design as a leader, as a startup founder, as a hiring manager in a company. If you don't design that game, then you're not gonna be able to take advantage of that kind of talent and find those ideal outcomes. Hope you all enjoyed this episode. We will continue this topic in a part two of Paleo Life. Take care. the warrior poet there's more great content on instagram follow shri the warrior poet on instagram that's s-r-i the warrior poet you can also get to know me on a personal level by following shri actually on instagram as well the warrior poet is produced by laddie with special contributions by spoonman and me shri No, 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 Kevin. Mina do it. Speed up.